Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, but I did have a shack attack. A shack attack? <laughs> yes, I did. What does that yes, mean? Yes, I did. Well, I think that people might know the famous basketball player who is currently serving as a promotional figure for an office stationary retailer named Staples. So we have a giant Shaq who also runs a franchise called Big Chicken. You know, a wonderful guy. Well, anyway, there is a giant as in full-sized, seven-foot-tall, not cardboard, but reinforced fiberboard with a plywood backing support for his figure down the aisle of printers. And I was out looking for a new computer printer. And I, I had walked around this enormous figure. He's got a beautiful smile on his face. You know, lovely guy, very fun, um, even in two dimensions, right? And I, I could see it, you know, I, I understood, you know, there's a giant promotional figure here. But uh, as I was walking down the aisle again to circle back, uh, I, I heard a voice and it was one of my former students saying hi, you know, just waving across. And I just took my eye off the shack for a moment. <laughs> and yes, I did have a, a collision with a giant seven-foot-tall black man in Staples. And the figure crashed over, and it took out one of the half-aisles of printers. And uh, one of the guys who works there who has an unfortunate total body skin disease, I'm not sure about the total body aspect. I'm extrapolating because face, neck, hands, arms, you know, suggests a, a birth, you know, condition that's just going to run, run all over that he's been dealing with his whole life. And he rushes over and uh, he says, sir, sir, uh, are, are, you know, don't worry. Uh, you, you know, you're not going to have uh, to, to pay for any damage. And I looked at him, I said, Steve, there's no way I'm paying for any damage. The question is, Am I hurt? Do you not know about lawyers and civil suits? And he sprung back up like a jackrabbit that had been hit with a slingshot and bounced back up into full position. And he realized, oh, the game has changed on me, you know? And uh, so I thought, look, you know, I'm sorry about any damage. To, I'm sorry about making a mess. I, I, I try to be really polite and, you know, cool in the world. It was just a moment of just running into a giant, you know, promotional figure. I like Shaq. I like Staples. Uh, I'm sorry about any damage done, but I'll be damned if I'm going to pay for anything. More likely, uh, I would be, if there was any pressure on that, I would be thinking, eh, civil lawsuit. Sure. You know? Well, you know, when you when you take down their champion, I think I think that now makes you the spokesman for Staples. I think that's how that works. I think you've, I think you've oh. conquered, I think you've conquered Shaq. I think, and his, you know, his uh, fiberboard body lay crumbled before you. And uh, I think, I think now you, what you should have done is you should have raised your fist high and said, you know, this is now Sacknessum's territory. Um, 
I could get my own cardboard. That's fantastic. Yep. You know, David, I didn't think of that. I'm going to go back to them with this counter offer. This is a great way to go. Yeah. In fact, as you say, in fact, I own the entire company now. So funny, by the way, that you mentioned Shaq, <laughs> uh, because I had just po- I went back to Twitter, uh, much to my chagrin, because the monoculture is so strong right now. You know, I have a new novella out. It's called Tomahawk. And uh, I needed to promote it, and there's just nowhere else to go. But um, I spend my time on Twitter refusing to engage with the stream. I have very strict rules about not posting anything, um, because b- before you know it, I'll be posting all sorts of offensive things, and it'll just be bad for everybody. <laughs> but I posted a picture of Shaq hiding behind a tree yesterday, Um Maybe around the synchronicity. Same time. Yeah, it was a synchronicity. Yeah, it's just a very funny picture of a very th- like skinny tree on some sort of strip mall boardwalk, and uh, Shaq is kind of hiding from the paparazzi behind it, but he's an enormous man, so it's just this very very humorous thing. But yeah, so there was a bit of a bit of a Shaq sink there for us. My aunt used to live very <laughs> near to Shaq's house when he was playing for the Orlando Magic back in the day. Used to drive by it, big blue roof. Um, I guess that's neither here nor there. But um, yeah, over here, uh, my office has turned into Baby Central. I built a bassinet today. I built a, oh, wow. a rolling cart. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, we're, you know, seven weeks from the due date. It's really hit me this week. So the way that I would describe it, and, you know, people who've been parents will probably understand what I'm talking about, but there was a sort of over overarching sense of anxiety about having a kid, but nameless, a nameless anxiety. And then once we hit today, 33 weeks, that anxiety, in fact, lifted, went away. Um, And it became something that I can interact with, right? I can build a bassinet, I can stock up on diapers, I can get a stroller and a, you know, a car seat and things like this. And, uh, so it's good news in fact. Um, but, uh, it is a bit overwhelming at times to look at my precious office with my books and grimoires and little statues and things like that. And, and now there are car seats and baby clothes and (laughs) (laughs) toys and all sorts of things. So the kid is the kids set on um, on all the accouchement of uh, of childhood for now for for his newborn uh, for his newborn life, but um, but yeah, Chris, what did you want to talk about today? Okay, well, I think we're we're just going to follow up a little, very briefly with uh, our last episode and a look at. Um, the geocultural region of of Melanesia, but the larger question of the problem of anthropology and and what is great about anthropology and why we are all anthropologists and also some of the problems of anthropology, which I think reveal the problems of personal communication and engagement with uh, our own culture. It's, it's a great way to see that. We, we talked about the need to look at other cultures as a window into our own, a way of, of re-seeing, revisioning uh, 
Um, you know, writers always talk about revision, you know. It's like, well, no one really you know, does much revision, really. Revision is pretty hard, <laughs> you know. To really re-see yourself and to see the cargo of culture that you carry is, is the current mission of this, this series. And it, it's a big task. You, you can't come at it from one angle. Uh, you can't arrive at it at one point in time. You need to look at it from many angles. And probably, ultimately, any kind of real understanding comes through a traumatic separation of yourself from yourself and from your culture. But anthropology is a great discipline. It's an unfortunately uh, lost social science in the moment. It was burning hot when I was your age. Um, it's kind of fallen out of, of favor in many ways. Um, we have physical anthropology as in kind of human archaeology. That's burning away. Uh, we have some interesting things going on. But a lot of people think now, well, you can't have anthropology because that's a judgment about another culture. It's like, well, I'm sorry, you get on a public bus and you're making judgments about other people for your own survival. You're making human perceptual judgments all the time. It's how much you, what value do you attribute to them and how much do you stick by them? How flexible are you in changing them? Well, I think all of that comes from good anthropology, not bad. So I think we're going to start with that idea. And then um, I think we're going to expand our global focus to uh, an area of interest of yours, which I think is really fantastic, of, of South America and the Peruvian Indians and the, the Amazon River Basin, which is, if people haven't been there, um, Yes, it is a deep privilege to go there, and it's becoming more a, an enormous privilege to go there while it still exists. And I have no problem in saying I've been greatly privileged to, to have any hint of that amazing world. Um, but it is a, a, an enormous hub still of the la one of the last great indigenous streams of culture left on the planet. Um, and we need to listen to those people, respect them, not kill them, not obliterate their habitat because of mining and agriculture. Um, I mean, that's why indigenous people are really overrun today. It's not this idea of the missionary movement. That hasn't been great. I, I accept that people, you know, don't really think well of that. But it's really about a radical capitalist obsessive search and rape for mineral and timber resources, you know, and land, you know, that's really what's going on. So it's a capitalist attack, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking that we, we might have a little bit of a recap about where we um, left off. And, and I'd like to share um, a couple of, um, emails from people who listen to that, uh, and, and one of them is from that area. Um, would that be cool? All right. Well, this is um, from someone who has seen many, many worlds uh, from a very backcountry environment in Papua New Guinea, uh, the uh, Chimbu, which is pronounced Simbu province, which is... Uh, a very interesting province in the highlands, uh, who is also 
garnered a little bit of uh, Western education and has made a decision to return to more traditional ways of life. Um, and it reads, never forget that the waves of impact on our island and within our mountains were waves and not of one people or at one time. This is something that is lost on many Western people in my experience. They think that the moment of contact was some kind of contamination like unto a virus as of today. This is simply not true. We are not, and all of the peoples that I know of like us are not that vulnerable. We were able to in integrate many different influences and many different influences that are non-white. It is ridiculous to think that colonialism was some instantaneous or even sustained force that overwhelmed us. On behalf of my family and my neighbors, my community, I live in a village community now, we are not overwhelmed. We thank you for a position that respects our integrity, our sovereignty, and our ability to move forward into the future because we also have a future. And I think that's a very powerful statement from someone who has to do a little bit of work to get online and to communicate and is, you know, dealing with satellite technology and radio. You know, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's awesome. Very interesting man. Um, and I'll, I'd be happy to, he's working on a, a book, David, that I think you might enjoy. It's a, it's a crime novel uh, set in the Highlands. Um, and we'll, we'll wait to hear more. But I think that's a powerful statement of like, let's not condescend to people who are outside the sphere of, you know, social media and mm -hmm. following the science, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're following their own science and they have their own, they, they invented social media. They've got the Garamut drum, you know, they're like, a, you know, they're communicating, commu you know, community, community, you know, with, by a whole bunch of means. They don't need Twitter, you know? So anyway, I, I thought that was really a, a great starting point. And uh, I have a few more I'm going to share over time with some people, you know, just because I'm hearing from people who are, um, you know, not around the corner. Uh, I've got a, there's a teacher in, in Namibia in, in Africa who um, is listening to us. And I really, really respect her. I only met her briefly at a conference in Africa, but she teaches 150 students uh, all alone, all alone. Uh, she's the only teacher. She's the school. And uh, I, I think that someone like that listening to us is is worth a lot to me, you know, and I'm sure to you. Yeah. Right. So. Oh, 100 percent. That's that's awesome. That's amazing. And by the way, I worked with children and I have uh, had crowds of about 120, perhaps. But we're talking maybe uh, four days out of the year I had to do that, that kind of crowd control. So, you know, if she's doing that every day, respect. That's all I got to say. 
Um, but no, that's great. That's great. And it is important um, to what we're talking about here to, again, keep in mind, you know, this is sort of the, the project that I think that you and I are doing, which is um, we are... Uh, the name of the podcast is is No Country, right? And so we don't have our, our feet as much as we can anyway, not firmly planted in one sort of scientific dogma or religious dogma or way of seeing the world. You know, we're really uh, attempting to be curious and in doing so pay our respect to uh, the many different perspectives that uh, that can come out of this world. It really is fascinating once you get outside of the sort of Western specifically American, uh, dogmatic, capitalist scientism that we're so enmeshed in, the world opens up. It becomes a more interesting place. And I think that that particular uh, email that you got there is a testament to that. Well, I, I, I agree. And I think, it, you know, we, as Americans, um, I mean, even though I'm a citizen of two other countries, you know, I, I do identify as American. Um, I think it's just so easy to not acknowledge the cargo of culture that we carry of assumptions of, you know, we think we're, you know, all about, you know, America seems to be about diversity and inclusion. Well, no, it's not. It's about a new form of colonialism that is constantly, you know, impressing and imposing itself on the world. And, the more aware we are of that, the more sensitive we can be, you know, to to make more gentle footprints in the world, you know, to walk more quietly, to hear more birds, to be more respectful of other people. That's what diversity and inclusion should really be about. And it's frankly not within America. It's just a political rhetorical grab for power within America while forgetting that America is not the world, you know. Yeah, you mentioned earlier um, the, or rather the uh, the email did about uh, religions moving in and how it all these things happen in waves and you know um, if you think about settler American settlers um, you know beating native children to you know sort of beat the devil out of them and force them into you know our way of dressing our way of thinking. Um, there is definitely, and I'm, I'm not in any way attempting to draw a one-to-one connection between myself and, you know, what's happened in the past, because I think that's, uh, distasteful, but there is a similarity in kind to the way that our current society thinks about things like diversity. You know, they don't, they don't care what color your skin is so much as you worship the correct God, dress the right way and say the right things, uh, at Sunday service. So the more things change, I think, the more they stay the same. And uh, yeah, that diversity word triggers me because <laughs> it's because it's just not. Well, as is a group I have there, I have a group of uh, 22 black students uh, from my past teaching in my local university who are looking to me as sort of a mentor of their communications for a lobby effort to maintain academic standards and a meritocracy framework uh, in a time when everyone says, oh, no, you know, anyone of color just can't have any standards, you know. And they say, well, wait a minute, we, we need them the most. But, but they talk about faces in the places, you know, that, that these institutions of America currently love colored faces in brochures and on websites 
to show, well, we're diverse, you know, we're not, you know, not all our people are white. And then, of course, they turn their backs on them the moment the, the photo shoot is over. So I think it's just about getting past that superficial level of of American discourse at the moment, which I hope America will will get past. But to get on to our, our topic tonight, I, I, which I think is really interesting, and I, I want to hear your thoughts about um, the Peruvian and B- Brazilian, Bolivian, Amazon uh, people. But I think that what to wrap up uh, the discussion about anthropology in Melanesia, the Western Pacific um, Black Islands of uh, the Southern Hemisphere, um, north of Australia, south of the equator, related to Indonesia, not connected with Malaysia, but it's a very complex archipelago sort of culture. It That was a real um, interesting experimental lab for some great anthropologists. Malinowski, I, I think people would know Malinowski. He was just, he's a major figure. And also Margaret Mead. Uh, Margaret Mead was married to Greg Bateson, who uh, Dave and I both admire a great deal. She did some interesting things. She also wrote Coming of Age in, in Western Samoa. A very important uh, female social scientist. People who are uh, reading and attentive to uh, cultural studies will know that she's come under attack for being overly credulous about the Trobrian Island people. And and we talked, the Trobrian Islands are a really crucial uh, small chain of islands within the nation state now of Papua New Guinea. And they are kind of linked to the Western idea of Tahiti uh, far, far east. Uh, in terms of a Pacific paradise and also a, a social paradise of sexual liberation. Sexual uh, freedom and anything goes is kind of what they have become sort of known for. And Margaret Mead did a lot to, to implant that idea. And she's been criticized in the last 10 years for being overly uh, credulous and taking kind of what she wanted to see out of that culture. And there is some truth in that. And there is always going to be some reasons to throw stones at various anthropologists for not being the detached observer that we expect them to be. And I'm not sure we ever, you know, that's a reasonable claim, you know, detached observer, you know, I think that's nonsense. But what I, in, in, I think it's worth for people who are either interested in Margaret Mead from a feminist point of view, a major uh, social intellect point of view, or from anthropology and whether or not Western anthropologists have any place in any culture around the world. I encourage people to think about that a little bit more um, carefully and and to be... uh, looking at things from a more empathetic point of view, because I think, yes, she, she didn't maybe do the best anthropology of regarding the Trobrian Islands or Samoa. Um, but that's not an argument against anthropology as, as a practice overall. I think it's a call to action for all of us to be better anthropologists in our own lives, whether we're 
dealing with our, our partners on public transportation or on social media. You know, it's just, it's a high calling. Anthropology is hard work. Uh, it's like music, you know. If you miss a note, if you miss a note, this is a good example. If you miss a note, Miles Davis said, that's not the reason to give up music, you know. You know, that's the, that's the, that is the ultimate reason to pick up music more forcefully, you know. Yeah, miss that note, miss that note and, and hear it, hear it. You know, so I, I think that uh, there's a lot more that David and I have to say about uh, Melanesia and cargo cults and anthropology at large. And we'll pick up on that as, as, this, as we progress. But that just is a little bit of an underlying factor in all of the discussions that, that we bring, because we're kind of, I think anthropology is one of our key underlying concerns and doing that better while still acknowledging the problems with it. Um, yeah, there are problems with it, sure. Uh, and, and there's a problem of projecting and wanting to see in, in another culture or seeing in another person, you know? Uh, I mean, we hear this, I, I'm hearing you say this, you know, well, that's actually a rhetorical statement of assertion. It appears to be, you know, listening and kind and empathetic, but it's actually, you know, <laughs> it's an assertion. Yeah. And then yeah, that's when people say it to me, I go, no, I didn't say anything like that, you stupid bitwit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, and I'm curious because you mentioned that one of the goals would be to have people be better anthropologists in relationships and on the bus and things like that. This might be too big of a topic, but it sparked curiosity in my brain. What, what would that look like to you? Okay. Well, I think that, um, not to plug my own, uh, emerging textbook from Rutledge press, a major international publisher, but it would uh, it would entail maybe some some real serious listening memory exercises of breaking down uh, how one listens to the world. We we have an idea now. There are different kinds of intelligences. You know, there are people who are visual. There are people who are kinesthetic. Um, I don't think enough has been done with how people listen. And I would go to some paralinguistic exercises that people like Greg Bateson um, and um, George Lakoff talk about that really, and that's beyond body language. It's really an all embracing thing of multicultural uh, linguistic communication. You know, um, how does an African person uh, relate and, and communicate relative to someone from Northern China? A lot of people go, well, don't stereotype people. You can't stereotype people. That, that's terrible. Well, you're not stereotyping people. You're actually just looking. You're, you're watching closely, you know. So the first thing is not to be afraid of the idea of attention being judgment. This is what the problem with woke culture is about, in my mind, is it's all afraid of judgments. Well, no, it's about... A justification for being inattentive, you know. Um, a Solomon Islander is is watching the world very, very closely. How many times did the butterfly beat its wings in the last few seconds? 
you know? And a Western person goes, oh, oh, what butterfly? You know, they didn't even see it, you know, because they're afraid of making judgments about people. They're afraid of making judgments about anyone. Why? Because they're afraid of being judged fat, obese, stupid, slow, inattentive, you know? So, of course, you know, you're going to defend against that. I'm not judging anyone because I don't want anyone looking at me too closely. Right. <laughs> well, it always seems to be the way, doesn't it? The, the people who sort of beat those drums the hardest, I set a little timer in my mind um, and say, hmm, I'll check back on this person in about a year and see where they are. And uh, without fail, there's always some sort of sexual scandal or something of the, of the type. And, you know, it's a matter of... Um, yeah, the people who are the loudest at it, you're usually trying to distract you from something. You know, please, please don't look at my past. Please don't look at the things that I've said in the past 10 years. Don't don't come for me. But I do like this idea that you have of the current sort of cultural situation we find ourselves in in America being one of um, of actually inattentiveness. I thought that was a good a good summation of it that I'd never really thought of before. That's my baseline. That, that would be the way I would put it. I, I, I think it's just simply a, a cutting off of, of perceptual connection. And, yeah. and I'll relate it directly to the idea of, uh, of childhood and, and the impending birth that you're looking at of, you know, I mean, just close your eyes and imagine, you know, in the best case scenario, uh, of what a, a baby's crib would look like late morning sunlight and what might be hanging over that crib. You know, I suggest it might be a kind of mobile, mobile, you know, a sculptural sort of, you know, like a miniature, you know, Alex Calder sort of thing. Is it something to distract the baby? No, it's something to create attention, to create focus, to create an interest in shadows and light and reflection. And it creates whole nerve channels of brain activity, of being aware of the world. And we start with that idea. I mean, I can remember being on uh, uh, a tram in Melbourne and there was this quite, uh, she was quite attractive, I suppose. I didn't know. She's a strange woman across the, you know, off of me. But another woman had this baby and he had a really powerful, just beautifully formed hand, even as a, you know, this infant and, and he was reaching out. And what was he reaching for? This other woman's gorgeous, dangly earring, you know? And it could have been a Christ, but it was a beautiful, you know, and they all got onto it. You know, the, both women understood what was going on, and, and it, was, it was kind of a funny thing. But it was a beautiful moment of, like, he wasn't distracted by the earring. He was attracted to the earring, you know? Let's not forget that, that, attract, you know, are you attractive enough is like, well, are you distractive enough? Is, isn't that an interesting way to think of how people dress and behave? You know, it's like, you know, right. are you distracting me enough from my beer with your cleavage? You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, that is very interesting. And it sort of, I'll have to think about that some more, but that's definitely a new way of looking at these things that I hadn't conceived of yet is that oh be, well because you know some of the linguistic and rhetorical um knots that people can tie themselves in these days um it does seem like a lot of words to and to to sort of you know make sure that people don't look behind a curtain to make sure that people don't get too attentive 
in a way, it seems that uh, that these entire structures of words and symbols are built, um, and they're all in the service. You know, the more complex, the more the more intensely they're sort of hammered down on people. They're all in the service of keeping you from looking what's at what's right in front of your face. Um, but yeah, I will definitely have to to think about that some more. Well, it's it's worth you know. For people who are interested in this, uh, Henri Bergson, you know, great Nobel Prize winning philosopher, very interesting and very, you know, readable uh, French-based writer, said that, you know, and, and really makes a beautifully simple case. It takes three times the effort, linguistically and conceptually, to deal with a negation, don't do this, as opposed to the positive, mm, try this, you know. Maybe not the imperative of do this, but at least the positive. To, it takes three times the effort in any situation to deal with negation as opposed to a, a more proactive, fun thing. But anyway, yep. so let's um, let's hear about some of what you've been reading about. Lately. Oh, sure. I would love to talk about it. And I think that what we've been talking about with some of the problems with Margaret Mead leads me to sort of the overall... Uh, umbrella idea of perspectivism. And I'm the most familiar with perspectivism uh, via a Brazilian anthropologist by the name of Eduardo Viveros de Castro. And he wrote this great book called Cannibal Metaphysics. Um, cannibalism, but great title. yeah, cannibal metaphysics, two meanings, right? The metaphysics of cannibals and also metaphysics that cannibalize each other, right? Mm-hmm. So perspectivism and i first heard this i believe on uh i think might have been a rune soup course i know it was something rune soup related but the best way that i've heard perspectivism explained is when we look at a hole in the ground we just see a hole in the ground but a snake might see that hole as a home okay so if you put yourself in the in the mind of a non-human entity uh or even a, a human from a different culture, it's not simply uh, a difference in, in in kind of these things, but an actual like the way that you feel when you when <coughs> excuse me when you are inside of your home, very well might be the way that this creature feels when it's inside of a of a hole, right? So following on from uh, De Castro's analysis of perspectivism is this guy named Eduardo Cohn. And he's got this great book, I think it's the only book that he's written, called How Forests Think. And the framework of the book, he spent a lot of time in uh, Ecuador among Quechua-speaking people in Ecuador called uh, the, the Runa people, the Runa Puma. And what he's doing in this book is playing with semiotics a lot. So semiotics is the study of signs, basically. Um, feel free, by the way, because I know you're very knowledgeable about this, to, to jump in if things that I say become unclear at, at any time. But in his book, he's looking very specifically at these uh, people and how they relate to the forest around them. And more specifically, he's grappling with this question of can forests themselves think, okay? So there's a great story that he tells in the book 
about uh, the Runa people telling him at a certain point to make sure that he sleeps on his back, facing up. Because if a jaguar comes in the night and sees his eyes, sees his face, the jaguar will recognize him as a fellow jaguar, as a fellow predator. However, if he's laying on his stomach and exposing his back, he will signify to the jaguar that he is in fact prey, that he's meat to be eaten. And so Amerindian cultures, from the readings that I've done so far, have a very specific predator-prey dichotomy of looking at things. So that fits into that very, very nicely. But the Runa people's relationship to the jaguar, you know, it's it's in their name, right? It's the Runa Puma, right? They believe that in the jungle there are were jaguars that will uh, that kind of roam the forest that turn from human back into jaguar, um, and they they relate in their hunting strategies to the animals that are around them with with language that is uh, not symbolic. This is where it might get a little confusing. So <laughs> you're chuckling. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of a lot. It's okay. Um, it's okay, man. So basically confusion. Good. Cool. Cool. Um, so basically when it comes to semiotics, uh, this guy, uh, Charles Pierce had this idea of a, it's kind of a tripartite, uh, split in. So you have the, the sign you have the object that's that's being signed, and then um, the, the the person who's who's seeing the sign, right? Um, and within those signs, there are, furthermore, there are three different types. So there is symbolic signs, which is what we would call language. Okay, so words on a page are a sequence of symbols that represent either a concept or an object. We read those, we interpret it very quickly, and we, we know what's going on. But there are also two different types of signs other than that. Now, there are iconic signs, right? And so iconic signs are things that represent or are sort of similar to other signs. And then there are indexical signs, which uh, a good example for of an indexical sign is you know seeing smoke in the distance and because you see the smoke you know that there is fire. So what Cone is suggesting is that the the forest itself does in fact think because though it doesn't work with symbols the way that we understand them with language, it does work with and recognize both iconic and indexical signs, and by extension, so do the Runa people. And he gives a good example of that when they're out hunting for monkeys. Um, so it always seems a little brutal to kill monkeys. Um, they seem sort of too human-like to me. But anyway, no judgment. Um, so when a monkey is standing on a branch, for example, and the, the branch is bowing down, it's about to crack, and the monkey's going to fall to the forest floor and become prey, they will communicate that this is going to happen by using onomatopoeia, by using uh, sound effects to, that sound like a branch breaking or a branch bending. Um, so that 
what what he's positing there is that there is a series of of signs of, of, of a basis of semiotics that is outside of language that is more in tune with how a forest itself would communicate than how humans would so that's that's a lot that's a lot i've been talking too long um but i kind of wanted to put that out there because i thought that there was some good some good meat there for us to chat about. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, it makes me think of a few things. Um, I haven't spoken to uh, an old uh, classmate of mine from undergraduate days for a long time, uh, Ian Baldwin. Um, I believe he's still at Cornell. He's a biologist, um, and his uh, early work was in uh, Central and South America regarding how trees talk and how communities of, of non-animal uh, connection work in terms of chemical and, uh, well, basically chemical communication. But it was a very interesting start, and I believe he's, he's still out there. Dr. Ian Baldwin, he, I, make, I made a note that I should follow up on him. Um, he's a very, very brilliant person when I knew him a long time ago, and I think he's still at Cornell. Um, I can't hear the word jaguar and, and not think of, and I, I, I don't know if we covered this. I think we might have. Um, my incident on the beach in Belize, when I fell asleep and, and was awakened by a female jaguar, and I had a kind of interspecies romantic moment where it was, it was a kind of literal make-out moment. She, uh, I don't know if she thought I, I needed protecting or uh, needed loving. I mean, is there really a difference in the female uh, you know, thing either way? It's question. kind of like... Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's like a tongue bath is a tongue bath is a tongue bath. Uh -huh. <laughs> but it was a make-out session with a female jaguar. And uh, although I do support leopards and tigers, and uh, from a visual design point of view, she, her coat was just the most beautiful thing. And I felt a, a, she walked me back to this kind of raunchy bungalow uh, that I was staying in. I don't know, as if to protect me. I mean, protection and attraction are very, very difficult things to break apart, particularly when you're male looking at females and then you're looking at a female jaguar, you know, mm -hmm. across species. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what her MO was, but I am sure that she walked me back. And um, it was a, a, a slightly painful moment of, of like, you know, when you meet someone on a, you know, a trip when you're young and you're traveling, you think, oh, maybe I could hook up with this person long term, or maybe this is the right ending. You know, it was just, I could hear the romantic music coming in in a way that was really, you know, the orchestral poignant. swell. Yeah. 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 But when we talk about perspectivism, I would like to offer listeners another sort of angle on this because they may come at it from another point of view, another perspective, if you will. Um, Everything Davis. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, perspectivism, if you sort of come at it at, you know, from a Wikipedia sort of level, which I'm not saying anything against that, it is a kind of um, philosophical critique of the idea of knowledge, the idea of a, of a, a genuine unifying epistemology. Um, it starts with, with Plato's skepticism about how much we can know. Uh, it extends through Leibniz, and certainly Nietzsche is probably the most 
uh, important figure in that idea. And uh, a, a philosopher that I really enjoy and I really recommend a lot, uh, Jose Ortega y Gasset. You know, he's just, he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. But it's very easy for people to think of perspectivism in terms of relativism, as in anything goes, as in we will never know anything, you know, authoritative about anything. There is no objective world. That is that is really a simplistic and erroneous idea of what it means. And it's an erroneous idea about what it means, you know, at large in terms of what David was talking about and in terms of anthropology and uh, the idea of knowing any other culture um, ever. It, it, it really is about, uh, it's just a good brake pedal uh, on certainty. Think of it that way as a, is rather than a, a denial of the possibilities of, of any kind of understanding or the pursuit of understanding, which is the problem. People think of like, well, okay, well, we're never going to know anything. Therefore, we're never going to do anything. We're just going to sit and watch the, the, you know, the latest video game thing. No, it, it, it's an assertion about the nature of human understanding that should give us a little bit of humble pause, but not stop our inquiries. It actually, in my view, should inspire better inquiry, but just with a little bit of a sharpened axe, you know? Um, and I, I, I think of, um, you know, when we, we talk about the anthropology of Southern, you know, South America, Claude, Claude Lévi-Strauss was an important French anthropologist, really kind of the, the founder of, of a structuralist approach to anthropology. And for people who don't know what that means, it, it really boils down to looking at very physical behaviors and artifacts as a, as a tool for deriving meaning. And it's a, as opposed to trying to impose meaning upon structures and institutions and behaviors. In other words, don't think about the funeral that you're watching from a Western point of view. Try to watch the funeral or wedding, whatever, from as localized a point of view as possible, but then derive some larger meaning about the culture from these core ceremonies. Uh, and I think there is a big difference about that. I think it's perfectly fair to say a wedding is, is different than someone just waving hi to you you know, while going to whatever, you know, latrine situation they have. It's different. You know, it's a big social deal. So you build your idea of culture on major occasions, rites of passage, you know, childbirth, death, weddings, you know. And, but you do, you do make extrapolations, I think he would say, rather than conclusions. Um, but I recommend a, a wonderful book which embraces a lot of world travel. It's kind of one of his great, it's as much of a memoir as it is uh, an anthropology book, Tris Tropique, The Sadness of the Tropics, uh, which embraces many places, but it has a lot to do with his work in South America and Amazonia. And the first sentence is a, a wonderful, ironic gambit. I hate traveling and explorers. Um, which is a beautiful way to start a book, which is all about traveling and exploring and a lifelong commitment to that, you know, and it's uh, instead of, 
I mean, it's one thing for a real traveler and explorer to say that than it is for someone who's just, you know, couch potatoed into uh, a woke lifestyle that denies any kind of, you know, discovery of the world and doesn't even know what GPS stands for. I mean, I think that's a beautiful starting point to a lovely book, and I recommend it to anyone interested in whether they're interested in anthropology or not. Tris Tropi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole ability of perspectivism to allow you to feel a sort of connection to different modes or modalities of thought is, I think, its most important aspect because what it's doing is instead of sitting there and attempting to figure out what's right and what's wrong, it allows you to be more fluid and for ideas to become emergent. So it becomes a process by which um, the act of putting on another's skin and relating to a culture in a in the best way that you can, knowing that you have all of your cargo that's sort of mixing up with this other cargo, um, it, it allows for a, a dynamism of thought. And it's really, frankly, I think the only way to move forward uh, once your thought has really stagnated. It reminds me of an anecdote that Cohn talks about in his book, where he is on a bus traveling, I believe in the in the Andean mountains, um, and they get stopped by a rock slide, and behind them, they are also stopped by a rock slide. So they can go neither forward nor backward, and a few pebbles begin to plink on the top of the bus, and this causes him some great concern, as I'm sure it would me as well. I think I would start freaking out at that point. Um, and he looks around the bus, and nobody on the bus besides him seems bothered by this at all. Mm. And so he goes back to camp. He survives this ordeal, obviously. And he feels, he takes this disconnect with him. He feels separated, not just from the people who he was on the bus with, but from humanity and the world in general. It's this dissociative feeling that I think a lot of people feel in this day and age. And it didn't end until through his binoculars, he observed this you know, sort of beautiful, colorful, um, tropical bird that was flying through the air. And when he did that, through the act of sort of looking at the bird, he felt connected again, basically. He was able to He's not sitting there thinking, I'm going to use perspectivism to think of myself in the place of this bird, nothing like that. It was, the the feeling he got from the bird was an emergent property of becoming connected again to the world around him. And I think that we could all take a little bit of, uh, we could take a page from him in that respect. Well, we absolutely can, you know, I mean, you, you, Go speak to any practicing psychologist today, and they will tell you instantly the three most significant issues that they deal with outside of, oh, maybe, okay, substance abuse and eating disorders are anxiety, depression, and dissociative behavior. Dissociative behavior on the part of people or, or is an experience from people who are walking around their rooms you know, they're not going out into the world. They're having that in their bathroom. You know, they're having that as locally as you possibly can. 
And I think that we've, we're, we're seeing more and more of this in a COVID environment where people are just not getting out. And the idea of traveling and exploring as being some sort of uh, exploitation of other cultures and other environments, no, that's, that's what living and that's what being part of the world is all about. This is one of the things I think is just absolutely appalling about what culture is sort of denying the, the importance of world travel, exploration, connection, trade. You know, we've talked about how trade is an ongoing thing. I mean, this isn't a, a new thing. This has been a global thing. And there's a wonderful moment in Sir Walter Raleigh's many fantastic bits of writing about being on the Aronico River in South America in the, you know, 17th century. Come on, that was hard work to get there. Anybody who could do that is is brave, courageous, and I don't care. I think they're to be admired just for even arriving there. And he's got an electric eel on his boot. And of course, electric eels aren't really there. They're not really eels. They're knife fish, but they are electric. And so here you have an Elizabethan poet, lover, spy, uh, Renaissance man of the world, you know, in a faraway place, a long way from all the things that make sense of him. And he's got this strange creature on his boot. And you know what he said? I was surprised, and of course that's spelled with, you know, Y, S, you know, Elizabethan English stuff. And then I looked at the tiny sloth in my hand. You know? So he was covered. He was, he was there in many sort of ways. And I think when people feel, you know, surprised, disadvantaged, uncourageous, scared, and dissociative in their lives... Well, imagine you have a tiny little brilliant saffron yellow sloth in your hand, you know, and you're in a faraway place, you know, and and hold on to that thought and don't kill the damn sloth, you know, just keep it warm and safe and cool and, and think about yourself as protecting something instead of being attacked all the time. Everyone thinks, oh, I'm, all, I'm under constant attack, I'm disempowered and, you know, everyone's out, to, you know, well... Really? Think about being a, a caretaker and custodian of some other, you know, creature's safety, and maybe your paranoia will dispense, you know? It's just like, I, I've, I've grown tired of this whole idea, and I think that this is one of the ways to think about, you know, we don't want to caricature indigenous people in any way, or caricature any people, but I think one thing you can say is there is a care that is involved with being in the world that we in developed nations do not have. And they, they, there seems to be something that unites people from South America to the Arctic Circle, to Oceania, to, you know, equatorial Africa. You know, there's a care, a sense of, of not just self-identity, but responsibility of not being uh, a dickhead, you know? Right. Right. No, 100%. And it reminds me of the situation that we're in 
now culturally here in America and the West in general of everybody being connected by the internet, but not really being connected by sort of anything. See, I think that it works in these sort of juxtaposed ways, right? We feel like we're getting more and more connected with people, but our actual sort of lived experience that our bodies are experiencing, right? The the movement of our meat uh, bodies through viromes and biomes are not diverse at all. And I think that a lot of the, I think that a lot of the cultural angst that people feel right now has a lot to do with the fact that we are not encountering difference in an honest and perspectivist way and are instead trying to monoculture everything, right? Whether it's us mm. or, you know, literal crops or what have you, you know, monoculture is the, I was thinking about this again, getting, having to get back on social media and it's depressing. And I'm going to take this from, you know, the Amazonian rainforest to the, to the wilds of Oklahoma in the year 2002. But, you know, even back then when the internet was a new and interesting thing, you had to explore it. You had to go to different websites by, you know, having people tell you about them or, you know, going down rabbit holes or things like that. And now where do people go? They go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and that's it. There's just, there's no difference in anything. Might be a bit of a digression, but that's just what it TikTok, reminded me of. you know, TikTok, there's always yeah. going to be something new, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, but I think the point is the same. Is it, it I mean, is the content, uh, surface area of content actually changing? No, it's not really. It's all the same. It's, 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 it's conceptually various, you know, and it's interesting for people who really want to follow this up because I, I've had a real problem with big data and big tech and AI sort of stuff. But I know some people who are interested in AI and are really, you know, they're investigating it seriously, particularly from a media analytics point of view. And there is some interesting insight that can be gained into what we're doing because of a completely objective number crunching artificial intelligence point of view. And the idea that because the number of media outlets, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, whatever, the idea that that increases the complexity of culture is, is fundamentally wrong on every level. It is absolutely untrue. All it is is a repetition of things. And no one would say repetition is just, you know, more images of, you know, Cardi B doesn't make more Cardi B. It's just like, you know, it's a hall of mirrors. We can see that, right? No one's going to say that that makes more complexity. So this is what we're facing now. And our culture believes that we're becoming, you know, incredibly complex, more than the mind can handle. That's a University of Michigan survey comes out with that as one of the, the key things that people think about today. There's just more happening than the mind. Well, you've got to have a really small mind because there's not more happening than the mind can handle. It's just a lot of nonsense and static. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's not more meaning in life. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there isn't more complexity. Uh, chaos is not complexity. 
you, people need to really review that concept. Ooh, I like that. It, it's not the same thing, you know? Yeah, and it reminds me, I made a rule for myself that I was not allowed to scroll down the Twitter timeline because there's just nothing to be gained from doing that. But I did a few days ago, and I saw a lot of things popping up about um, Dr. Seuss and mm. Dr. Seuss's estate pulling books that had elements that people find to be outdated and racist and what what have you. And I refuse to have an opinion on Dr. Seuss um, because those are books. For, Wise. Because those are books for children. Um, but I was noticing as I was scrolling down the timeline that over and over again, it was just people repeating the same points and ideas about Dr. Seuss as if it was their own, <clears throat> but it wasn't. It was to what you're talking about. There was there was no difference at all. And when you're scrolling, what I think you're kind of hoping for is novelty. That's how they that's how they hook our little rat brains into these things, our dopamine brains, because we're looking for novelty but we never get it, right? It's the pulling of the slot machine expecting something different than what happened the first time you pulled the handle. Um, but I saw these these similar opinions over and over and over again, and I thought, yeah, this just, you know, I could pick up this book that I'm reading for the podcast with, you know, Peruvian mountain gods or Ecuadorian puma, were pumas, right? I could spend time with this, or I could spend the next half hour of my life being inundated with the exact same opinion about children's books over and over and over again. And I thought, no, nah, I, re I refuse. I refuse to do that. Well, that's wise. But I'll, I'll tell you something that will cheer you up. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I have a friend. He happens to be Chinese-American. But that, that's, you know, really here nor there. But he's a really relentless researcher and inquirer. Of, of these kinds of, of you know, voguish ideas. So we got it together, a bunch of people in the lab, just responding to the Dr. Seuss thing. And, and, you know, saying, okay, all right, well, maybe these, these, these images are offensive. And so the people, you know, we're all expecting a kind of, you know, a little bit of a, you know, they could vent about their ideas about, you know, whatever, you know. But no. A piece of paper and a pencil got put in front of all of them. And uh, the instruction was, okay, I'd like you to draw a white person, an Asian person, a black person of any nation, uh, and you can do as much as you want with uh, gender and sexuality as you like. Just, you've got 15 minutes to draw, make the best drawings you can. You know what, people proverbially shat themselves. They had no way, they, you know, a couple of people went, okay, yeah, I actually like drawing, and they, they dug, but not many. Most people are going, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You know? <laughs> I would be that person in that experiment. I would think, oh God, how do I draw an Asian person? Yeah, you, know? you see? So it's, you know, no one's thinking of it from that point of view. It's like, well, this is, this is hurtful. This illustration is hurtful and stereotypical. Well, all right. Uh, you do uh, something else here, you know? I mean, how good yeah, an artist yeah. are you, pal? You know, 
<laughs> I mean, really. That's the that's literally the only Dr. Seuss opinion that I'm going to allow myself to there have. There you go. Um, because I think it's a good one. Well, Chris, uh, before we wrap up here, I do want to do our end of show call to action. You guys have been doing great. We really appreciate you listening, and we really appreciate you getting the show out there. Our numbers are increasing every week, um, which is what I'd like to see. Uh, Chris and I definitely want to see more, of course. So if you do have the time, a review on iTunes would help us a ton. doesn't have to be long. can be a line or two. It can say, I like the podcast. It can say, I don't like the podcast. Although if you don't like the podcast, I'm not sure why you're listening to episode 27 at this point. Nevertheless, if that is what you want to do, that's totally fine. It still helps us in the algorithmic uh, expression of the podcast on people's different sundry podcatchers. So please do that. Please do share it on social media. Uh, I am back on social media. You can follow me at brbjdo. I'll follow you back if you're a listener of the show. Be happy to. I also revamped the No Country Twitter account, which is no underscore country underscore pod. And I'll put a link to that because you know, if you're driving or doing chores or what have you, uh, like me, you listen to podcasts while you're doing the dishes, you can't exactly uh, put them down and pick up a pen. So there will be a link in the show notes to those. I would also like to uh, do a little bit of self-promotion, which I don't really think, I think we've promoted the show here a bit, but not really our own stuff. But I do have a new novella out. It's called Tomahawk. Um, it is part three of a five-book novella series about dirtbag occultist Oklahomans. It's a it's a crime <laughs> fiction story, and uh, if you go to Gumroad, which I'll provide a link to, it is uh, currently pay what you want for the ebook. the The paperback will be available shortly, and uh, if you pay for it now, I will have parts four and five emailed to you completely for free. Uh, I also blog every single day at brokenriverbooks.com. So Chris and I have been talking about this, and Chris had some great uh, ideas and things to say about not only how we get the, the podcast off the ground, but you know, it's this idea of everything helps everything. So I've, I think I've been doing uh, both myself and Chris and the podcast a disservice by never mentioning the things that I do outside of the podcast. So Please do check those out, and I'll turn the floor over to Chris. If you'd like to uh, promote anything or talk about anything, here, here's your chance. No, I just support that idea, David. I, I'm working on a big project for Rutledge Press, which I've mentioned and which is due at the end of April. Um, I've got a nonfiction collection, which is out with uh, someone very important in the industry. I'm looking at an alternative way of promoting uh my work and uh, I don't know I think the days of, of um, agents and, and traditional publishing frameworks is a little bit sort of behind the time so I'm looking yeah I'm looking for some other options uh, and I am um, excited about taking photographs I've sold some work to the Nevada State Historical Society and the Tourism Board and just finished up some really interesting work uh, as an international examiner for two universities in Africa. And as I think people who know me know, I, I really, as much as I love Las Vegas and America, I, I do see myself finally 
uh, ending the, the game in Africa somehow. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but uh, I, I, I feel very welcome uh, in a couple of parts there. It's a very complex continent, obviously, but I'm excited about the new writers that I'm meeting through there. And I think there is something about Africa and India, particularly from my point of view, at least from what I've been exposed to, uh, that is very, very uh, hopeful uh, relative to a lot of, of, of the American obsessions. And I, I think that, you know, I, Dave and I are not anti-American. He lives in Oklahoma. I live in Las Vegas. I mean, there's nothing more American than that. We're not anti-American. We're, we're anti-American centrism that just doesn't see past its own culture. And there are some exciting peoples around the world, whether it's south of our border, whether it's farther, you know, south, whether it's from Africa or India, or, you know, there, I mean, there's some interesting folk. Um, a friend of mine wrote from northern China. She's back in the little village that she grew up in. She actually, she's educated and living in Shanghai normally, but she was the first person from her village to leave. And the government uh, actually gave uh, a tractor to the local town, which was a big, big deal. And they named it after her. And it was so cute to see her pride of, of you know, posing with that. You know, you imagine an American, you know, person like they, they would just no, that would they'd be too cool for that, you know. Um, but she was really proud. She's the first person in that entire region. We think, well, there's so many, you know, billions of people in China. It's like, well, no, there are remote areas. There are small villages. There are people who have never, you know, seen an actual paved road. Um, you know, it, and to for her to go off to Shanghai, which is one of the, you know, the massive world cities, uh, was a really traumatic thing. And um, when I met her there, she was, you know, very scared about, you know, car exhaust and, you know, door slamming and traffic and, it was really kind of cute for to see her very proud photo of her name on this tractor and her father and mother who have never been more than a few miles from that community. Um, so there's a world out there. It's it's um, it, it it just isn't an American world. And we're trying to reach out to sort of embrace those connections. And we appreciate the listeners who are tuning in when they can from the Solomon Islands and from Eastern Africa. And, you know, thank you. It, I, you know, not everyone's on the same time uh, scale and, and not everyone has instant access to everything. We appreciate that. We understand, but thank you for your input and we'll hopefully keep reaching out to you. Excellent. And so on the next episode, I, in addition to reading How Forests Think by Eduardo Cohn, I'd like to talk more about those ideas. I also read a book called Earth Beings um, by a woman, let me make sure I get her name right here, uh, Marisol de la Cadena. Um, and it is about uh, Peruvian shamanism and mountain spirits and things of that nature. So I, I gleaned a few interesting things from, from that read as well. And I'll continue to look at uh, different books regarding these topics it might be a might be of value for me to revisit uh, cannibal metaphys metaphysics as well but um, what do you think about that just kind of continuing where we left off in a sense right I, I think we've got some ground to cover and I think for uh, people who are interested in 
the forest people of Central Africa, and I'm talking about the wonderful pygmy people. We need to really dismantle this idea of pygmy because some people think that's, you know, a denigrative term. Nonsense. It's, it's an anthropology term. Uh, we've got some wonderful things to share about some of the, the most joyous people on the planet, despite, despite the hardships they face. All right, excellent. Well, thank you everybody for listening and uh, we'll see you back here same time next week.